2: Coming up on this week's show, Teletext Worms is real. A 90s
1: classic finally gets a proper sequel. And we talk gaming manuals in 2023 with Rowan Fox-Noble.
2: And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each and every Friday with our brilliant friends at Bitmap Books. Now, coming this month, The Art of the Box. Now, this is a gorgeous 564-page celebration of video game box art, featuring interviews and the work of more than 26 artists from across the last four decades. You can find out more about that over the next few weeks. Check out that book and the rest of their collection at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour Podcast, episode number 390. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Robbie Abbott. And me, Joe Parks. And very nice to be joining us for this week's podcast, whether you've been listening since the very beginning, 390 episodes ago. Wow. Or maybe you're a new listener. Welcome to the podcast. Every single Friday, we celebrate classic video games, classic technology. Basically, if you know this sound... then this is the podcast for you. Hello. Uh, else wants it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny, when I was looking up that, obviously that was the Nokia ringtone. Weirdly, in Google, everyone refers to that as the uh, the Nokia Mozart ringtone. So I thought, I mean, I'm not really into classical music at all. So I thought, oh, Mozart must have made that. Done a bit more digging, though. It wasn't Mozart that made that song. It was a, a Spanish composer called Francisco Tarega. And this is from uh, Gran Vals.
0: You know what?
1: We nice, joked last week about a fact of the week. <laughs>
2: <laughs> there you go, spitting facts every so week. It's on like, this like when you start
1: the computer up and it, and it gives you a
2: fact and it says, Do you not want this tip next time? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Check yeah. the little box. <laughs> so we starting to, to keep show going now. But yeah, 390 episodes. I'm going to frighten you guys, but that does mean we are getting close to another big landmark on this podcast. I want to talk for, about for, it, I know.
0: <laughs> I don't know what you're on about. <laughs>
2: We don't want to hype yeah, it up the, too much. <laughs> no, we never like to hype it up too much. I mean, you know, episode 400 is obviously in a couple of months away. I think they normally fall around October, don't they? Our uh, centenary yeah. um, episodes. So uh, we're getting close to that now. Already plans are in the works. I know a few people have kind of asked on Discord, what you got planned for it? We have got a few things lined up, you know, but obviously this podcast, we intend to keep it going well into the 400s and beyond. And uh, of course, keep bringing you incredible guests. And you think by the time you know, it gets like 400 episodes. I mean, there were people that, you know, in our first 10 episodes were like, oh, you guys are going to run out of guests in. But there is so much to do with retro gaming and technology oh, oh, yeah. to cover.
1: There's so many areas and, like, just interesting chats you can have. And I think it's amazing that we've got to this this far. You know, mm. there's a great kind of history of episodes that you can check through. You know, we've had so many guests that have been on, but we've, we've even had guests that have passed and stuff. And yeah. it's so important to kind of get these stories and... Uh, I just really enjoy doing it. I enjoy doing
2: it with you guys and also chatting with all of the people online as well. Yeah, we've got an incredible community around this podcast. So uh, long may it continue. And of course, we'll uh, bring you up to speed on what's been happening over the last seven days in just a minute. But you mentioned there, Ravi, you like talking about, you know, all different things, all different facets of retro gaming and tech. What about gaming manuals? Because they were such a big thing back in the day. And obviously, something that around the, I'd say probably around the Xbox Three, sixteen PS3 kind of time, that's when you opened game boxes and you found that rather than having a proper thick-printed manual in there, it was generally just a, a sheet of A5 paper, wasn't it? They, they just kind of vanished, I guess, when online tips and tutorials came into gaming. But they were definitely a massive feature of video games back in the day. Well, also, um, you, you say big there. Some of the manuals were the biggest thing in the
1: box. You know, you get mm, yeah. a huge, chunky manual, loads of weight on it, and then a couple of floppy disks. Um that's now kind of – it's kind of gone, sadly. You know, um, I, I, we we talk about it on this interview. Um, we've got uh, Rowan, uh, Rowan Fox Noble, and he works for uh, Manual Booklet Print UK, which is a wicked little company that he started where he's kind of printing new manuals for Switch games and stuff. And these are mm. amazing little pieces. And he, he talks about how, you know, companies are saying – There's been environmental problems with printing stuff. You know, uh, uh, they're also just releasing PDFs of manuals. Um, You know, it's kind of it's been removed from the from the video game world. But also, you know, even the switch boxes have a space for a manual and the little booklets that he creates are absolutely perfect to go in there. They look like they would have come with the original game, but he's not only just doing modern Nintendo stuff. He's doing indie games as well which is uh, really cool to see. And I got uh, Joe on this interview, of course, being the resident Nintendo fanboy.
0: Oh, yeah, it was a really, really fun chat. You know, first half kind of just being nostalgic with Rowan, which, you know, we we really love. And kind of like you say, talking about classic game manuals and kind of like, we kind he kind of started his journey around the N64, but I got some Super Nintendo chat in there as well. Um, but honestly, these these manuals that he makes um, and tip books that he does as well, little notebooks and stuff, you... you if you opened up your Switch case and it had one of them in there, you you would not question it. Like, they are absolutely fantastic. Um, and, and it was just a it, really, really fun chat, so I am really really appreciate you bringing me on that one, Ravi.
1: It's it's interesting coming from the kind of Nintendo wheel because um, mm. I know with the computer we kept all the big boxes and stuff like that, but I, I do remember with the N64 manuals and stuff and even the Game Boy ones, people would just chuck them out. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. you'd just have the carts left loose and the manuals and the boxes would just get totally... Disregard Like yeah, Joe's mum.
0: Yeah, my mum. <laughs> say it Say it every year or so, yeah. But you know what? It's interesting, actually, because you just said there, Ravi, um, you know, Nintendo, SNES, N64, Game Boy, all cardboard, and a lot of them got chucked away. But big box PC generally got kept in quite good nick, and I don't know if that's... Maybe because they were just built a bit sturdier, because they kind of have a bottom tray, but, you well, know...
1: PC guys had shelves. Yeah,
0: PC guys <laughs> had shelves maybe <laughs> or just a little bit more sense about them maybe uh but
2: yeah interesting i've never really thought of that before i wonder if it's because you'd, you'd install it to your hard disk on a pc and often wouldn't need the floppies anymore oh maybe and you put the maybe. box away and and maps yeah. as
1: well and stuff i used to remember getting great maps and you only seem yeah. to ever get these things with like special editions now and it's never never with the standard so it's great mm. to see it uh you know coming back for 2023
2: and I'm looking at his website, which is uh, mbpuk.net. Um, some of the, the manuals that he, he makes. There's one for Metroid Prime Remastered in here. He's done Paper Mario, um, The Origami King, Animal Crossing. He's done a player guide to that as well. New Metroid so- Prime, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, it it does look like. I mean, are these, um, obviously, we'll find out in in the interview coming up. I mean, are these kind of officially endorsed? How does this kind of Yeah, well, we talk about that. (laughs) We talk about about
1: the legal aspects of it as well, because you know what Nintendo are like, but you're going to have to wait for the interview to hear about that, though.
2: There's a teaser for you, so uh, he's coming up on the podcast in around half an hour from now this week's special guest, Rowan Fox Noble of Manual Booklet Prints UK, something we've definitely never talked about on the podcast before, but like we said, you know, it's really interesting to uh, cover all aspects of retro gaming and the amount of memories I've got, mainly of trawling through manuals when, you know, you first get the game and you might be on the bus coming home and you couldn't wait to get it in your machine, you just kind of have a look through, wouldn't you always open Or, it and... or the
1: pirate game where you desperately needed the manuals. <laughs>
2: You didn't have it, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you had to borrow a friend's
1: to work out how to actually play.
2: Yeah, type, or, or when you got the uh, yeah, type in word twelve on page sixteen of the manual. And you're like, ah, okay, better go get a photocopy of that. Uh, obviously, don't have to worry about that anymore. So he's coming up on the podcast in around half an hour from now. But of course, the first half of the show that's when we kind of have a look back on what's been happening in retro from over the last week, and it has been a busy seven days in the world of retro gaming. And uh, this is a cute little story. Now we did cover this a while back, um, that Team 17 did an April Fool's, didn't they, back in 2019, when they basically said there was a a long-lost port of worms that was designed to run on UK Teletext systems. Now, back then, everyone was rather getting excited about it and thinking, oh, wow, there might be a a version of worms that's in, like, Teletext was kind of like ANSI art, wasn't it, really? Like, it got on bulletin boards. And then, in other words, you know, it was... All a complete prank, because it was released on April 1st. Everyone clicked then. It was like, ah, it's made up. But it actually caught someone's attention, a programmer called Alexandra Group, who uh, decided to make this into a real thing.
1: Uh, Yeah, so this was uh, from the demo sceners, and, uh, you know, it's come from Evoke Party, which is absolutely awesome. A really, really good party in uh, Germany. I want to go one day. And um, this is quite mad, because... teletext I always associate with the BBC computers. um, Yeah. From what I've seen, you know, like people running demos like Bad Apple and stuff like that, um, I've always seen them running on like a BBC Master or on a
2: kind of older system. But to see that… that that mode 7 mode, wasn't it? That was made for teletext on the BBC Micro. Yeah, and
1: to see this running on an Amiga um, is pretty mad. Of course, you need a teletext-enabled TV. Uh, connected up to it and um, you can actually play a game of worms which I I don't know enough about this to know if this was technically possible back in the days or if it's kind of a novelty
2: that's interesting you mentioned that because I'm looking at this now I didn't realize that it actually used teletext on the television then I thought this was just kind of displaying out of the standard Amiga no no RGB you you,
1: you actually need a teletext enabled yeah. uh,
2: CRT yeah wow that's crazy. So, basically, it is a playable version of Worms that runs in Teletext, things. I'm watching this video now, and it's got, you know, it's got suicide bombs in there, it's got the wind as well, you're controlling the characters, and they've got the names above them. And apart from looking, obviously, very low-res and 8-bit, like you said, Ravi, like a BBC Micro, pretty much, this is a fully playable version of Worms. This is nuts. Yeah, it is mad.
1: And the thing about it is, as well, it's obviously the screens have an animation and interactive elements and stuff, and... I remember when I used teletext, it was literally just, you know, with the remote and <laughs> there wouldn't there wouldn't be any of these effects. You you wouldn't have anything like the water and uh, you know, the kind of cave landscapes. But for me, for some reason it fits ideally with the graphics. Like <laughs> worms looks really good in this. And uh I just have this mad image of like going back to the kind of eighties and you know, implementing this and everybody playing worms against each other in the UK. (laughs) (laughs) That would have been like a massive network game. Yeah, that
2: would have been awesome. Yeah, probably Um, impossible
1: though. But um just the idea that, you know, this is gonna come out the demo scene, definitely. And and just mm. implementing this is uh it's really, really good fun and it's just it's just mad to see, isn't it?
2: Well I remember when we had the um the teletext archivist on the podcast in the early days, didn't we, when we talked about um restoring teletext signals from LVHS vhs tapes and that was an interesting chat as well because the way basically teletext works is there are yeah 312 lines in a pal image but the teletext signals are placed above that aren't they out of the range of the visible tv display yeah so basically that's the way this is working then the amiga is just kind of displaying the output in that kind of normally hidden part of the display and then the tv interpretates that as teletext signals
1: yeah, it's pretty cool. Maybe we're going to see more more games come to Teletext. Uh, I don't know if there's a Teletext Lemmings or uh, what. Yeah, well, there needs to be. Yeah, <laughs> 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 what, what what other titles do you think would kind of fit Teletext? Bubble Bubble, like Buster Move. Oh yes, yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. the NES games would work really well.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe some Atari games, some Atari Pac Man and ET. Get that on Teletext. Yeah. <laughs> 2600 yeah.
2: one flickering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do love it as well, though. That you, apparently, you do control this with the Amiga's mouse. Because at first I was thinking, do you have to play it with, uh, you know, the, the remote control on your TV? Um, <laughs> but apparently not. You can not use the Amiga's mouse, which um, is a bit of a relief. I didn't fancy playing that with Yeah, I guess it's uh, just
1: using thing. the CRT as the Teletext output, and then yeah. the Amiga as the actual driver behind it.
2: Yeah, I'm interested to play this, though, because I, mean, I, I do have a Teletext-capable CRT stored away which I think it would be worth getting out to try this out because I'm wondering obviously you can watch the video but it, I wonder what the latency would be like because whether you, you're going to need games where you haven't got really fast responses to like maybe something like pac-man wouldn't be that it's, good it cause. certainly
1: looks very fast to me yeah um, uh, I I wanted I've got a teletext enabled tv and I wanted to get a raspberry pi and have an output um you know where you can you can run cfax or the old tfax service on there and uh just have it to update news and stuff, but um, I've got an Amiga next to it. If I could
2: connect it up for
1: this, that's going to be wicked.
2: Yeah, so very, very cool to see. So basically, if you want something that you think is really cool, just make it in April Fool's and then, you know, some from the demo scene will make it reality in a year or two. So if you're going to download that, uh, Teletext Worms is available now to play on your Amiga and your Teletext TV. I'll link up that in our show notes. Now, here's a follow-up to a story that we covered back in February this year. Now, do you remember we were talking about this... um, Atari Jaguar emulator, or Atari Jaguar for our friends over the pond. Um, this is an emulator called uh, Big Pemu, or Big Pemu. Still not quite sure how you say that. But we did mention that this uh, this really fully featured Atari Jaguar emulator now has Atari Jaguar CD support built in. He baked that in back in uh, February of this year. Um, but there has been another big development as well. Now, it turns out that you can... Play the uh well, there is only one of them, but you can now play Atari Jaguar virtual reality games on a modern system via this emulator. If you're a fan of Missile Command
0: and a fan yep. of like extremely so slow refresh rates yeah. <laughs> and a bit of Atari probably. Jaguar, <laughs> then this is for you. This is the story for you. So uh Yeah, this is it really interesting. So this comes from uh Rich White House. Um mm. And he, I think he created the big PEMU as well. And he was also responsible for the, you know, the unreleased headset for the Sega Mega Drive slash Genesis that was kind of uncovered. Yeah,
2: the
1: Sega
0: VR. Oh, the We've Sega got an VR. interview
1: soon where we talk about that. Yeah. <laughs>
0: um, He was responsible for porting that and getting that working on like a HT Vive, uh, which we went into real detail about. So now he's done the same with Missile Command, uh, for the Atari, the Atari headset. I've, the amount of work that goes into this you know to kind of like with the, the frame rates and everything because of there's a lot of work but it's it's way over my head but you know kind of as in the refresh rates and kind of essentially having to slow it down and stuff like and that and like to,
1: the tracking and stuff like that yeah the, yeah,
0: the tracking and just it's absolutely mind-boggling Boggingly, I can't even say it mind-bogglingly I can't say it <laughs> mind boggling. <laughs> <laughs> boggling, boggling. <Bogling. laughs> Here we go. Mind boggling. Um, like boggling better no, though. <laughs> how much effort <laughs> goes into getting this to run, and just the fact that he's able to get his hands on these demos and you know these prototypes and stuff like that. I mean, does he actually have the VR headset? Do we know, or does he just have the files? For- well, if you watch
2: this video, yeah, I mean, but looking at it, he's basically just kind of reverse engineered the code in Missile Command. Okay. Um, to make it work on a, an HTC Vive headset. Um, so, yeah, I don't think he's actually in possession of one of the very rare Atari Jaguar um VR prototypes. But, yeah, I mean, the code's all in there in the games. So all he has to do is kind of make it work in the modern headset, you know, via the emulator. Because, interestingly, I mean, th- there is only that one game that was made mm-hmm. for the unreleased Atari Jaguar VR headset, Missile Command. Um, and they did demo that at a, you know, a couple of trade shows back in the mid-90s. And, the, you know, there are videos on YouTube about it if you want to kind of see what it looked like. But this is the first time, because obviously back then, it wasn't really possible for them, you know, at a a trade show, to hook it up to a recording device. So you had to watch a guy with it on his head going, wow, this is cool. This is the first time I've actually seen what the effect looks like. Because in this video that um, I'll link up in the show notes, he actually demonstrates it with a screen capture as well, doesn't he? The uh, kind of stereoscopic effect of it.
0: Yeah. And I mean, graphically, um, it it reminds me of, um, where did you learn to fly? What's that game called? Oh, Cyber Cybermorph. Cybermorph, that's the one. Yeah, uh, graphically, it it does really remind me of that. It, it's it's totally Jaguar, you know, like Atari Jaguar, isn't it? But yeah, I mean, like you say, it's interesting to get that scope of what it actually looks like because of, as you say, back in what 93, we we didn't see this, you know, like you say.
1: Well, there were there was a few prototypes like hanging around, but um, I don't think they were working, and uh, mm. you know, there, there were bits of them. I remember the uh, Leicester. Retro Computer Museum, they um, had one as well. Uh, Simon Marston, who does, you know, the virtuality stuff, which was the Amiga-based um, kind of 3D virtual reality system, like the old heavy one. Uh, looking at this, I wonder, you know, obviously there's a limited selection of games. I wonder if he's going to put a mode in where you can kind of VRify ify other games. So, you know, like playing oh, Alien vs. Predator yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, in, yeah, yeah. In, in VR <laughs> would be really cool. That would be really cool, yeah.
2: Well, because I did buy, and you guys know this, that I bought a, um, a headset off eBay. Uh, I think it was before Christmas last year called the Dino Visor. And this is basically, I think, when they, Atari scrapped the Atari Jaguar, the technology. Basically, they sold the technology to this other company. I've got a feeling there might have been a, a Chinese company who made this. Um, and they released it basically to work with... Just you know, PCs really. So, so I mean, all of pretty much most of the components that were in the Atari Jaguar headset is in this Dino visor. So, the only thing I think that's missing in there is kind of the head tracking. Mm-hmm. So, it is possible to basically hook the Jaguar's output into the Dino visor, which you can buy off eBay. I Man, I got mine for about hundred and fifty quid. So, most of the technology is in there, but it just means you've got to look around with the controller rather than moving your head. You know, whereas the original Jaguar VR headset actually had the head tracking in there, I believe. But actually, he's managed to implement that using the modern HTC Vive, so you do get the full Atari Jaguar VR experience now via this emulator. So I do think it's very cool. I mean, obviously, there's only ever this one game, and most people probably won't care about it. But I think having a look at kind of you know what the the system was capable of, because if that had come out back then, I mean, I'm not sure whether it would have been a massive success, but it definitely would have been the first kind of home affordable. Virtual reality headset wouldn't it you know decades before like you know Sony so um yeah very very cool to see kind of what could have been so if you want to check that out right now and obviously you can download that um, on the uh, the emulation for your modern machine I'll link that up in our show notes as well now another follow-up to a story that we mentioned a couple of weeks ago we we're talking about the the micro beast are you quite taken by this Ravi this was a uh, basically a kit computer wasn't it an 8-bit kit computer that you build yourself kind of in the vein of the old um Sinclair machines from back in the, the 80s, like the ZX80. Yeah,
1: yeah, I, I really liked it. And it was uh, compatible with the um, RC 2014 as well, and these kind of like little kit computers. And I quite liked it because it took, took it back to that kind of nostalgic, um, you know, building a computer and uh, thought it had a really good
2: educational aspect to it as well. Well, the guys behind that, which is a uh, Fear Tech dot com they now released a uh, this is kind of an add-on for the Micro Beast, but also the same this has got a lot of potential this is a new video card called the video beast which um is compatible with a lot of the old 8-bit machines like you know the z80 6502 6809 it said you know potentially lots of other 8-bit machines as well and that uh, really this is a proper old school video card isn't it because obviously that's one of the hardest things to do you know when you're building a An 8-bit computer or you want to expand your retro machines you know video cards are not only quite tricky to get hold of in good working order or you know they often break down or you know people have used them until they're kind of usable limits but you can emulate that using stuff like the pico or you know raspberry pi and stuff like that but having a proper dedicated 8-bit video device for retro machines and for kit computers like this I think it's a really cool little idea. And it's very small, this card, as well, isn't it? I mean, you can fit this into the palm of your hand. Yeah, it looks tiny, and it looks like, you know, it can
1: be expandable and used on all of these different architectures, which is pretty cool. Mm. Like, um, I like the idea that you can get extra screen modes and stuff by just clipping this card on. And you can probably use it for multiple uh, devices. But I guess, you know, obviously, people are going to have to develop adapters for it and stuff um, to have it kind of fitting in or hack it in themselves at the moment but it's it's got stuff like uh, one meg one megabyte of video ram in there as well it's um yeah. you know it increases the colors as well it's it's got some higher screen modes uh, it, i'm not i'm not sure i quite understand it but to me it just looks like an old school video card and that's cool <laughs> you
2: know? yeah I mean, it's got, you know, um, fonts in there as well that are built-in, bitmaps. It's got sprites on board too, you know, titling in there, uh, 512 colors. It's got some older 4x3 resolutions as well, like 320x240 and 640x480, you know, for hooking up to proper old-school CRTs, do it like we used to. We can do 16.9 displays as well. Um, so really, I mean, this is a device I'm looking at right now. I mean, I haven't got a micro beast, but um, I'm thinking of this as kind of, it could be a, a video card add-on for several other machines. I mean, I'll be interested to see if people get this working with like, you know, the BBC Micro or the Commodore 64, for example. And then, I mean, that, that kind of gives it a lot of possibility, doesn't yeah,
1: it? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking to, so it's got a thing called the host board, which is kind of clipped yeah. in. And, uh, you know, the Micro Beast as well um, didn't have any kind of big output. It was displaying in it in an LCD, um, a little screen. Um, and well, LED, basically. But uh, this this clipping onto it has a like VGA output as well. Um, so I guess maybe you could implement other stuff in there, like a HDMI or, you know, you can get yep. custom boards. And this is probably going to develop a whole little market of these kind of clip-on ones. And it reminds me of when, you know, the um, Raspberry Pis first came out and people were putting them in the BBCs as, as co-processors.
2: Is, yeah, by that tube port. Yeah. yeah, it
1: kind of feels like those kind of early days, and then suddenly, you know, this is going to turn into something big. So um,
2: I really like this idea. I think it's pretty neat. Yeah, and no, I mean, we, we've talked before about what. You know, big fans we are of this kind of hobbyist scene, even though uh, (laughs) some of this does look a bit too advanced for my kind of limited skills, you know, building a a micro. But yeah, I think, uh, you know, just seeing this stuff out there and the possibilities and then, you know, we'll obviously wait until someone assembles them all and then just, you know, writes drivers, then we can use them. Yeah, and
1: also it looks like it's got a SD card interface built into there as well, um, which is pretty cool. So you can maybe use it for multiple things. You know, this might become an all-in-one kind of 8-bit add-on.
2: Yeah, looks very interesting. So it's a work in progress at the moment, but if you want to check it out, um, I'll put that and, of course, all the rest of the stories in our show notes at theretrohour.com or check your podcast app. Now, we've got some very exciting news to talk about in a moment. Um, just dropped at the time we're recording this. Something I've been hyped for for many years. The Flashback 2 trailer has just landed. So we'll talk all about that in a minute. And some never before seen images from Sonic Extreme, that, of course, was that cancelled 3D Sonic game that was meant to come out on the. Sega Saturn back in the day. So we'll chat about all that in just a minute. Before we do, let's take a second to give a massive thank you to this week's sponsor, and that is our wonderful friends at Notion AI. Now, uh, we have talked about this before. I mean, Joe, you think about your morning when you go into work. You know, how many how many apps do you have to open on your, your desktop machine in the
0: office? I mean, I turn my computer on at work and I've got to go into OneNote. I've then got to open my Outlook. I then have to open my Gmail. I then have to open an app called CSM. I then have to open Excel. Then I have to open Word. I then have to open Teams. (laughs) It keeps on going. I then have to log into, uh, I I mean, I can't go into it too much, but another three or four apps after that. Um, And yeah, it's it's pretty frustrating,
2: to say the least. It would be pretty good if I could put all of them, if not most of them, in one place. Well, this is where Notion comes in now. Notion, the guys behind it realise that this is a nightmare for all of us. I mean, I'm the same, you know. Too many notifications as well. Your, your digital life is scattered across too many different places. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, think of this podcast, Google Docs, email, yeah. you know, Dropbox, Trello, Discord, you know, all these different services that we have to log into and constantly update and everything as well. Well, Notion is a single space where you can think, you can write, you can plan It captures thoughts, manages projects, even runs an entire company. And the good thing about it is you can do it in exactly the way you want. Think about how many different tools you currently use and maybe how much you pay for them each month as well. Trying to make them talk to each other can be a nightmare. Well, Notion keeps them all together in one tidy place. Just what you need in a world of too many tools, too many platforms and too many notifications. So some of the things this can do, and it's really powerful. I mean, I've been playing around with this for about a month now, and finding this really useful. I mean, I've been using it to help me do YouTube videos and stuff recently. So you can do like, you know, to-do lists on there, either individually or for your team as well. If you run a small company or even a big one, your company goals could be on there. You can put your planners in there, product descriptions, your marketing plans. And the good thing about it is it is fully multimedia. Embed images, videos, you make gorgeous documents. You can even do like an internal team Wikipedia in there product roadmaps, just a few of the ideas. And beyond documents as well, you can do databases to manage team-wide projects, track deals, onboard new employees, publish articles directly to the web. And one thing about Notion that I love right now is that they've actually got AI built in as well. And it's built into all their tools. So that means, you know, across your notes, your documents, your planners, you don't have to jump out into a separate tool. Because right now, I mean, if I want to use ChatGPT, I've got to come out of my word processor, hop in there, get it, do something, paste it back in. And this means you can basically automate all the tedious tasks in your day job while you focus on the things you're best at. It can help you with brainstorming, first drafts as well, even turn your messy brainstorming into a polished, finished document at the click of a button. So this is an absolute game changer. If you want a calm, clear place to focus on the things that matter, why don't you give Notion AI a try for free? Now, use our link. Of course, it really helps the podcast out by using our links for our sponsors. Head to Notion.com slash retro, or lowercase, Notion.com slash retro, and try out the incredible power of Notion AI today. When you use our link, you're supporting the podcast, NotionAI.com slash retro, and we say a massive thank you to our friends at Notion AI for their support of our show. Okay, our special guest, Rowan Fox Noble of Manual Booklet Prints UK, talking about recreating video game manuals, bringing them back for the 21st century and modern platforms as well. He's coming up in just a moment. You know, something quite hyped about this joke. So I know we've talked before about kind of what could have been with the Sega Saturn. I mean, one of the biggest complaints was it didn't really ever get a proper Sonic game.
0: Didn't get a proper Sonic. It got Sonic Jam, it got Sonic R, it got Sonic 3D Blast, but none of these were, you know, mainline Sonic games or new mainline Sonic games because obviously Sonic Jam was a, a compilation, and uh, I Ooh. actually saw a really interesting video on YouTube recently uh, by Sega Lord X, and it was about would have Sonic Extreme saved the Sega Saturn. I don't think it would have personally. I think there was too many really? issues there, but I think it would have made it do a bit better. I don't, I don't, can't say Sonic Extreme looks like the killer app of the Sega Saturn, but it's definitely an interesting story to say the least. Um, and for those of you who don't know, essentially, Sega uh, Sonic Extreme was going to be the main sonic game of the saturn but it was actually being made by the sonic us team rather than the japanese sonic team uh, because they were actually working on nights into dreams which was was a fantastic mm. game but sonic extreme it's a bit of a it's, it's meant to be a 3d game but it's kind of 2.5d game isn't it a lot yeah. of 2d sprites kind of in a 3d environment very similar to sonic 3d blast but it's a from behind view rather than like a uh isometric view and it kind of reminds me of um, a game called cooler world but a ps1 where when you move around the environment like you kind of walk around the walls and you can walk on the ceiling and the game like flips and stuff which is really cool um but the reason we're talking about this is free original never before seen screenshots have been found of the game and a lot of people get hyped about sonic extreme you know because there's not a lot out there but it really is there yeah Um, but this is all getting shared over social media and a lot of like uh, you know sonic forums and websites and stuff like that but these are screenshots just kind of reveal a little bit more about the game a few more of the worlds and enemies that would have been in there Um, but interestingly these were these were screenshots which were meant to be for magazine publications Um, yeah like press pr shots yeah press and pr shots and stuff so you know screenshots of where the game at is, is at in development and stuff like that. Um, but just for whatever reason, whether the game, because the game was cancelled or it was too soon,
2: too soon to reveal them and stuff like that. It, it just never happened.
0: I'm not too sure where these have been leaked from. I'm not too sure.
2: Well, I don't think these have actually been leaked. This is from uh, a—I was going to say—Twitter account, an X account. I'm doing the X in my hand right now. uh, Called um, Sega Forever, which I I believe is actually um, officially a a Sega channel. Okay. So basically, it's one of Sega's um, social media teams. Oh, okay. Their kind of their retro tech team has basically shared this and said, uh, you know, these were meant to be screenshots, you know, for magazines and stuff. Um back then, you know, there was meant to be the, the real deal, original screenshots of the game in action that were ready for uh, PR materials, um, but just never got out there. So this has actually come from Sega themselves, by the looks of it. I oh, mean, brilliant. I'm trying to get onto X right now. And it looks like Elon Musk hasn't paid his bill again this month because it won't load for me. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I will link it up when it, when it gets back up again. But it is interesting. So I mean, when I first saw these, I thought, has someone managed to get hold of kind of a, a bit more of the game than we've already seen? And, you know, then I got a bit excited, like, you know, well, if someone's got these kind of bits of the game we've never seen before, maybe there's a possibility some of it will be put out there so we can play it, you know, a bit more of a complete kind of version. Um, But obviously it looks like uh, this is just kind of, it's been in the vaults for several decades. Because, I mean, there were so many problems with Sonic Extreme. I mean, I think they started development of that in... 1994, mm. obviously, when, you know, the Saturn was kind of just coming onto the market, and then it got cancelled around uh, 1996, 97, I believe, so it was in the works for a good few years until they realised that, basically, they couldn't make it work, and yeah. then they didn't try again until Sonic Adventure with a, you know, proper 3D Sonic game, so it is interesting, I mean, do you think we'll ever see, like, a either a, a recreation or it would be nice if so if sega kind of i quite like this
1: i think the resolution on it is uh, and the texture mapping and stuff gives a clearer picture of what it would be like and and to be honest i would have probably bought a saturn if this was on there um i had no interest in it if it didn't have a sonic game on it um pretty much with the sega stuff uh yeah because i was i was still obsessed with sonic and uh you know i would have thought oh oh, they've finally done a new console and they've put a Sonic title out. Even if it was pants, I probably would have bought it.
2: (laughs) Yeah, level-wise, it looks quite interesting. And you see some of the enemies in here as well. I mean, obviously, I'll link up these screenshots whenever a look for yourself, but I mean, describing them on an audio-only podcast. Uh, But basically, there's three of them in here as well. And um, the stages look quite interesting. I think, you know, in terms of the visual appeal of them, I mean, obviously, you're working with very early 3D hardware, but they're kind of rings scattered around, and the colour palette doesn't look all that interesting on the some of them. I mean, they're, they're quite kind of two-tone, aren't they? Like yeah. gold and black, or a green and grey It's quite muddy. in one of them as well. Yeah, it is. And it's interesting the way, I think this is one of the biggest problems with the game that kind of getting the camera to work properly, wasn't it? So they're talking about, um, you know, a a couple of the the gimmicks that were in the game, being able to run up walls Mm -hmm. and the way the camera would follow Sonic as he kind of went up the wall, which obviously we saw, you know, they they did very well in Sonic Adventure. By the looks of this, I wonder how well it would have been implemented on the set. Yeah, I
0: I, I just, the Saturn, it it wasn't the best for 3D games. So I can't imagine the camera being that snappy.
1: Oh, look at Bubsy 3D. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was, was like PlayStation, that. but yeah. yeah but, <laughs> um, you know, that that period of 3D when they struggled to yeah. kind of, you know, get it going. Um, yeah, and I guess I guess if Team Sonic were like, eh, no, then, uh, you know, they had the high standards and maybe it's better that they didn't release it. But um, yeah, I would have bought any old Sonic crap back then.
2: <laughs> I love the honesty. Yeah. <laughs> I think it would have been nice though with. If- you know, maybe th- what what is out there. Cause, I mean, obviously, the fact that Sega is sharing this on their official social media channels means, you know, they know there's an interest from fans out there. It would be great, wouldn't it, if they... It would have been awesome, you know, if they ever do the Saturn Mini. Wouldn't it be great if they it, kind of finished it and put it on there? That
0: would be great. That is a good idea, actually. And you know what? I kind of wanted mm. to be like, oh, Have that one, Sega. Have yeah, that one. They're going to have that one. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like, oh, Sega, they never do what the fans want. But then, you know, when you think about it, you're like... Well, they did do a Mega Drive Mini, and they did do a Mini 2, and then they've been asking about the Dreamcast, and then they did do Streets of Rage 4. Like, well, they gave the rights out to Streets of Rage 4. And a a mini-mini
1: Game Gear. The
0: mini-mini-mini Game Gear, yeah, they did do that as well. So never say never, and I guess they will have it in the vaults somewhere, you know, all the original kind of, like, you know, files and everything of the game. So, you know, I, I don't know how far along it was, but it was pretty far along, but I don't think it was anywhere near the kind of final stages. But um mm. Nintendo did it with Star Fox 2. I mean I know yeah. that was like a that was a finished game.
2: But yeah, never say never, Saturn mini make it happen with Sonic Extreme. Yeah, so even if you know they don't ever do a, a Saturn mini, I think even just having something like this in like a nice Sonic collection. Mm or, you know, been able to play it on the Switch or something like that, I think will be awesome. I think there'll be a lot of interest in that. I mean, obviously, it'd be amazing if they actually made it available for the original uh, Sega Saturn, but I think, you know, maybe some, like, limited run could maybe do that, but I can't imagine Sega ever releasing official Saturn titles again. But, yeah, it would be great. I mean, I've got confidence that one day we'll see it in some kind of vein, so we'll obviously keep an eye on that. And uh, it is cool that Sega are giving it some attention, though. So I'm going to check out those screenshots. I'll put them in our show notes as well. Going back to the nineties, and we're one of my all-time favourite games, and I've talked about it several times on this podcast before. Um, I know you're a fan, Joe, don't know if you ever played much of this, Ravi. this is a flashback, or to give it its full title, "Flashback: The Quest for Identity."
1: I always found a flashback quite hard. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, and I didn't get far. I was, I always liked the intro and um, the kind of look of it, and thought, yeah, it, you know, it's a, it's a groundbreaking game, but um, I was always a bit crap.
2: Yeah, and this, it was kind of a, a cinematic platformer, I believe they called those games, like, you know, Prince of Persia, and obviously um, Another World came out a year before, or two years before. Um, and this was kind of the, the third kind of cinematic platformer game that I played. And I do remember a lot of hype around this in magazines at the time, people saying it was basically like a... Uh, I think they advertised it as a, a CD-ROM game on disc or on cartridge. You know, it was meant to be that advanced, and it had great cutscenes in there as well, um, that rotoscoped animation on the character conrad very much like prince of persia beautiful looking game you're right the ravi it was very difficult i think the furthest i ever got on flashback i got to there's a level i'm not sure whether it's the last level or the one just before there was kind of one that's in a um it's kind of a purple alien planet and you've got these creatures that are a bit like the blob Wow! they kind of chase you around on it
0: you made it a lot further
2: than i did dan <laughs> yeah because i was still ma- messing around ma- in the jungle <laughs> May have used a cheat, if I'm honest, <laughs> from a magazine or something back then to kind of see what it looked like. Never finished the game, though. I mean, I've, I've since kind of, you know, watched it on YouTube to see what the ending of the game looks like. Um, an incredible experience, though. And, I mean, we've we've seen updates of it many times over the years. Um, you know, I've got a version of it on my Switch, and, you know, there was a, the, the remastered edition that came out on the PS4 as well back in 2018, and there's been that. There was actually a sequel to it back in... The mid 90s on the uh on the playstation called fade to black mm. which um it's weeks when i first played that i didn't like it and i've since kind of played it again and actually it's kind of grown on me a bit more i do think it is quite decent but it's just again it suffers from that problem of you know it is early 3d so the controls are a bit fiddly
0: yeah i i remember playing the demo for fade to black uh with my brother uh, god was 95 i think that came out yeah and uh we thought it was going to be like Time Crisis, I don't know why, I think it was just because he had a brown jacket on, like in Time Mm. Crisis, and we played it, and we were like, even back then, as kids, we found it so stiff and hard to play. Mm. You know, it it comes back to what Ravi was saying earlier on about that, you know, buggy 3D and stuff, it's that early 3D that doesn't really work. But it was funny, because when you said, oh, the Flashback 2 trailer's dropped, I was like, fade to black. (laughs) I haven't thought about that in almost 30 years.
1: The reason we're talking about this is because the Flashback 2 trailer has just dropped. And yeah. um, I, I'm not going to be harsh, <laughs> well, I will. but this looks like every cyberpunk game that has come out in the past couple of years. So to me, it looks like, um, oh, God, what was what was that big cyberpunk game that came out and cyberpunk? Uh, yeah, that one. And, <laughs> and uh, also Stray in the name. stray as well. Um, yeah. You know, you could literally replace this dude with the cat and uh, there would be no That's difference. Yeah, and it looks like a very <laughs> Unity game. I can see what they're going for. It could be good fun, but I'm so bored of this aesthetic. I'm just, yeah, <laughs> looking at the trailer, yeah. it doesn't thrill me. It might thrill you as a as a flashback fan, though.
2: Well, they did do a uh, kind of a modern update, uh, an HD kind of remake of Flashback. Um, I thought quite recently, I've looked it up, it was 10 years ago, it was 2013 when this came out. um, And I played that thing on the Xbox One. Wasn't gripped by that. I mean, weirdly, at the time, I remember that coming out and everyone like kind of hating on it. But I've looked, I mean, I was looking up today and actually it's got some quite positive reviews. So it seems to be a game that's kind of a bit, you know... Take it or leave it. Um, I wasn't a fan of that kind of modern update of Flashback. I much prefer the originals. But then, yeah, this is a, a, a proper sequel to the original Flashback game that I think we did cover on the podcast back in uh, May 2021 when it was announced. And now, yeah, we've got the first look, the first trailer. They're calling this the, uh, the New Washington trailer because uh, you take a tour of the neon dystopian megalopolis of New Washington in this exclusive action pack trailer for Flashback 2. Now, it's the same character... Conrad B. Hart, who I was thinking though, the original game came out 30 years ago and he was about 30 then. I mean, it's quite, you know, the way he jumps and everything, he's quite athletic for like a bloke. Well, wasn't it? What, you think he should be like wheezing and stuff, (laughs) jumping (laughs) over stuff? Um, What wasn't the original
1: one in the kind of jungle forest setting as It started in it. It it started in it, maybe starting on the edge of the city if they do that. But, you know, satellite rain was another game that i've played which was a kind of continuation of syndicate it looks exactly like that this whole aesthetic is like done to death at the moment um
2: i mean looking through the comments on the youtube video a lot of people seem very hyped for it oh yeah i think Um, it's gonna
1: tick the boxes for the kind of nostalgic uh uh, group and stuff and i think it will sell and stuff but uh, it's not my cup of tea
2: i mean it's very compared to the original game it's very zoomed out yeah, so you know the original Flashlight is quite a tight kind of shot. You know of the character he Conrad seems quite in the distance for a lot of it. And interestingly, a lot of it is kind of the the side on platforming. You know, like the original game and kind of going through walls and doors and rolling on the ground that kind of thing. But there are there are elements of it where it kind of switches into kind of behind the like third person kind of view, doesn't it? Where you kind of see over his shoulder. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of walk forward. So it's, it's got a you know a few different kind of gameplay modes in here. I must admit, it's a really short clip. It's like less than a minute. And I'm not really quite sure how I feel about it yet. I'd like to see more of it. I mean, there was the official reveal trailer that came out um, at the back end of last year, which really was just kind of cutscenes. really. It wasn't any of the gameplay in that. So this is the first time I've really sat down and looked at the gameplay. I mean, it looks like it will be a fun experience, but I'm not sure... I mean, you've got the, you know, the climb up bits and stuff like that look quite like similar to flashback. I just wonder whether it's going to feel like you're playing a flashback game. I
1: prefer your version with a, uh, a overweight, wheezing guy running through. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you yeah, that, that game would appeal to me much for trying to kind of live in a cyberpunk society. Um.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is cool that they're kind of revisiting this and there's going to be like collector's editions like there is for pretty much everything now where you get, you know, a, a Conrad figurine and there's you no know, manual with it as well you know we'll talk more about manuals in a moment the original game comes with it too they're bringing it out on the you know, ps4 ps5 and uh switch as well not sure whether there's gonna be an xbox version of it, it says pc2 oh yeah xbox series x and xbox one so pretty much all the modern platforms you know i guess it's um,
1: it's how it plays isn't it as a platform yeah that's the thing. that's that's yeah. the key to it if they've got that right then uh you know then it's sorted um yeah, but the other remake, I don't think they did get that right from what I heard. But, uh, you know, yeah. it was all about the precision, wasn't it? And uh, uh, the platforming on that game.
2: I think that was a problem for me with the the 2013 version. You know, it looked gorgeous. You know, I, I thought that the graphics in it were nice. It just didn't feel like you're playing flashback, which I think, you know, it's a difficult thing to explain the feel of a game, isn't it? Mm. Um, and I'd, I'd hope that, you know, the the team behind this have kind of, you know, are familiar with the original and played it extensively to kind of capture that feeling of it. But um, we haven't got long to wait. It is going to be uh, landing on uh, all the modern platforms in November this year. Uh, then the uh, limited edition coming out in December afterwards as well. So uh, if you want to check out that trailer, I will admit, I think. I'll definitely watch a few reviews of this first, I think, before I go out and buy it. It might not necessarily be a day one. Yeah, I'm the guy who me. predicted
1: the Switch was a failure, so don't listen to me. Yeah, you know?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah we, we don't dwell on that, right? Really. <laughs> but um, very cool to see flashback, uh, the, you know, the, the franchise continuing. So if to check out that and, of course, everything else we talk about, you don't have to Google around. i save you the effort. I'll put everything we talk about in our show notes on your podcast <laughs> app or head to our website at theretrohour.com. Okay, then we are going to be talking to this week's very special guest, celebrating Nintendo manuals, retro and new school as well, with Rowan Fox Noble. He's coming up in just a second. Now, before we do that, let's take a second just to give a big thank you to one of our longest-running sponsors. That is our great friends at ExpressVPN. Now, think about when you, uh, you might nip to the bathroom. You always close the door behind you, I'd assume. Maybe Joe doesn't, but the rest of us do. Because you don't want random passerbys looking up, you know, looking what you're doing in there. So the thing is, when you're doing stuff online, why don't you protect your privacy there as well? Strange analogy, maybe, but that's what ExpressVPN is. Because basically using the internet without a VPN is like going to the bathroom and not closing the door. Because, I mean, your internet service provider, they know every single website you visit. And what's worse, I mean, we've heard stories about some ISPs, particularly in America, who are selling... Your personal browsing information to advertising companies, these big tech companies who are then using the data to target ads at you. I mean, we've all gone online before and searched for something, then suddenly next day, you know, you're getting bombarded with adverts about that specific thing that you were looking at. But ExpressVPN creates a secure tunnel encrypted between your device and the internet. So that means your online activity can't be seen by anyone even your ISP. And uh, we all use ExpressVPN. Ravi, you even used it before they approached us, didn't you? You've been using ExpressVPN for years. Yeah, I
1: just have it turned on on default. So basically when I start up my laptop, it just goes straight onto ExpressVPN. And it's great because, you know, I end up going to hotels in other countries and stuff and uh, connecting to Wi-Fi. You never know what their setup's like. You never know if people can sniff your traffic and stuff like that. So um, setting up is really easy and you can just do it on, Your phone, laptop, you can even have it on your router so your whole house can go through the uh, VPN, which is just absolutely fantastic. And it offers that extra protection and, uh, you know, it's just one button, basically. You select your server, you go onto it and it's very fast as well.
2: So we want you to try ExpressVPN for yourself, and of course, we will get you great offers. Try three months of ExpressVPN for free on a one-year plan by heading to expressvpn.com/slash-retro. expressvpn.com/slash-retro. Get those extra three months free and help out the podcast. And a big thanks to our friends at ExpressVPN. Right then, next we're going to be celebrating the world of video game manuals, old and new, bringing them back for the modern age with our special guest, Roan Fox Noble. He's coming up next on the Retro Hour podcast. So you're listening to
1: the Retro Hour podcast and we're here today with Rowan Fox Noble and he is from Manual Booklet Print UK and they are bringing manuals back in 2023. So how are you doing Rowan, you okay? Hey
3: there, yeah not too bad, thank you for having me, pleasure to be here. Excellent,
1: thanks for joining us and we have a a question that we always ask our guests and this is the first question, what was your first gaming experience that you remember?
3: My first gaming experience, I, I do remember, actually. I think it was about six or so. Uh, it was getting the N64 with Super Mario 64. Oh, yeah. Uh, at, I can't remember where. It was like a place that did just random videos, DVD. Well, no DVDs back then uh, at the time. Uh, but videos and, and other sort of technical stuff. And my parents got got the box, the N64 box. And, yeah, I remember setting it up and playing it and just being amazed really of how cool it was and trying to figure out how it all works and everything. It was, uh, it really just opened my eyes. And then the next game after that, Zelda legends of Zelda Ocarina of time, and that was, a, uh, that got me hooked really. There uh, so
1: you were definitely uh, a Nintendo fan and of that generation.
3: I, I would say so. It's the only one that I really knew, uh, or really remember playing. And, and I just fell in love with, with the games and it kind of, I just kind of stuck with it from there. Yeah wasn't until later on my sister got a PlayStation, uh, we started playing those games. And then I, I, you know, my knowledge expanded out of, oh, there's more than
0: one console and <laughs> a library of games. Uh, <laughs> I, you know. I love that naivety of it when you're when you're young. Like we're, we were all there, but yeah, just that one console was the be all end all. And then a cousin or a sibling suddenly gets another one and it, it kind of blows your mind and opens up. You know, and you would you say you were a bit of a Nintendo fanboy? You know, it was always Mario um, and Zelda. Yeah.
3: I mean I'm always
0: a little bit of a Nintendo
3: fanboy, I think, because it's such a childhood mm-hmm. um sort of, you know, core memory uh yeah. of me. Um and I, I do like other consoles and other games, but yeah, I mean Nintendo's I'm always gonna be like a little little bit of a fan towards
0: them, really. Absolutely. Same. So uh, what other consoles did you have growing up? Did you move on to the GameCube or did you kind of take a, you know, did you go down the PS2 route? I was stuck with the Nintendo
3: side because mm. I loved the characters and everything. So after the N64, I got a GameCube. Yep. Um, and then I sold my GameCube so I could buy a Wii because that was the one where my parents were like, you have to, you know, have your own money to, to buy yeah. this type thing. Yeah. Uh, so I did that with the Wii and then thereafter the Wii U. Uh, mm. And that sort of thing. So I've always stuck with the Nintendo uh, era, especially when living at home. My sister, she moved to the the PlayStation, so she got a PS two uh, and that. Um, but then when I was out on my own and everything, I I did sort of buy more of a, you know, a um, all the other consoles. Really, I do remember mm. when I was older as well. I did get an Xbox because my friend had an Xbox. We we did like our little Call of Duty zombie mm. sort of killing escapades. Yeah. Uh, I always find that really, really fun And Saints Row, but but that was like in my uh, mid-teens, really, Mm, Yeah, that I I got there.
1: So did you have um, much knowledge or or did you see many of the old computer manuals as well? Because when I was younger, like uh, I'm a bit older, computer manuals were kind of massively needed, but also they were huge. They were absolutely giant and uh, compared to something like the N64 manual, which... It was quite big, but uh, quite small. Did did you see any of these huge, huge a, ones?
3: A little bit. I remember it with the Sims and such. We didn't have like a very powerful PC, but I, I did remember um, when I was on the PC and taking over the phone line a lot that, uh, you know, I was interested in it. And so, so we did get a new PC every so often to play some games. Um, but I remember playing the Sims And I really tried so hard, uh, if you know of the game, playing that um, Battle for Middle-Earth 2. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, That was a good one. I tried getting that sort of work on on my PC, uh, which was a chore and a half, really, Uh, because obviously we didn't, you know, I had a GameCube at the time, sort of didn't need a massively powerful PC. But I do remember they looked lovely. Um, And uh, Star Wars Battle grounds i think it was battlegrounds 2 i think like age of empires sort of game yeah
0: what's that one called i know which one you mean i can't think what it's called now i'm getting uh, it's not battlefront from battle it's like an behind. rts yeah so it's an it? rts i think it might yes. be battlegrounds but yeah no that game's actually battlegrounds from. i
3: think is yeah. in my brain but yeah so those games they worked fine and i i remember them i think they had uh, like some nice booklets and that sort of thing with them
1: yeah uh, it was it was hard back then as well because the kind of, you know, sometimes you get pirated games and then you'd have no manuals or documentation and you'd have to kind of work it out yourself, which was uh, always a quite tough thing to do.
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I remember especially like trying to use those like little walkthrough or guidebooks or something that you'd find in like a magazine that has like a section yeah. based on it to try and figure out what the hell i meant to do or something
1: or, or yeah. ring a premium phone line as well which
3: I used to be that, a, a
1: way to do it
3: yeah i remember seeing them and i was very tempted but then my dad was like you know never call a zero nine number ever like,
0: okay. <laughs> or just never use the phone
3: <laughs> like, yeah, it costs money
0: so um obviously you know you kind of grew up with the n64 which was in if i if i remember rightly is the last console to have you know the cardboard boxes. Were you much of a victim mm. of parents kind of it away cardboard box, you know, game consoles and games with the manuals and stuff like that? Do you think you lost a lot of manuals over the years through that? Or think many people might have lost a lot of manu- manuals through that.
3: I mean, a lot of people probably would have because the parents would be like, oh, look, this is the game. That's all you need. You know, you don't need to store that somewhere. But strangely enough, I have a lot of my childhood games. I mm. kept the boxes. Oh, wow. Now, I will say some of them I wish I handled with better care, (laughs) Mm. (laughs) but I do have quite a few of them. Um, And some of them I do do go like, why did I do this to this one and not to this one? Because, for instance, um, I got both Castlevanias. And Mm -hmm. if you know the pricing of them, one is a lot more expensive than the other. Yes, For some reason, my childhood decided to pin the wolf and the little pirate ship. On the one that's now really expensive, rather than the one that's not so expensive. Wow! Well, like, why did I do this when I was a child? But, yeah, uh, but it was really nice that my parents let me keep my boxes. We—I remember that I had trays of the cartridges, but the boxes were kept like on the shelf, sort of mm. up in the wardrobe, and that sort of thing. Yeah, that's
1: um, a a good way of doing it because uh, I know a lot of people are collecting now, and they're kind of becoming completionists, and then they're looking for the boxes and they're looking for the manuals because yeah. uh, stuff like you know Game Boy manuals, especially, people just traded the carts. Yeah, and, it's uh, crazy. I, yeah, especially since and they've, <laughs> and they've become really rare. Went,
3: like chaotic.
1: Yeah, no, I'm I'm really pleased to hear
0: that. You know, my mum. I've said it on the main podcast before, on the on the news segment before, but. Uh, yeah, all of my cardboard boxes, Game Boy Advance, SNES, N64, all just got chucked in the bin. They just saw it Whoa. as cardboard. Just saw it as cardboard. Just saw it as rubbish. My parents did. They're all just in bin bags gone. See you later. So oh, it's I'm so good sorry to, to hear. <laughs> it's That's good to terrible. hear. I, I hear so many people with the same thing. So it's good to hear that, you know, there was a system in your house, which I think is fantastic. Yeah. So um, what were some of your favorite manuals of the era, of like the retro era? Because of, you know, I used to love, like the Tekken manuals, you know, any sort of fighting games where it had all stats about the characters, mm. you know. You'd kind of come, you'd be on your way home from, you know, Toys R Us or you'd be, it'd be Christmas Day and you'd be dra- driving over to your nans and you're reading the manual and you're reading all the, the silly things about the age of the characters and stuff like that. Was any that kind of stuck out to you?
3: Oh, a- a- absolutely. I would take them to school. I would, mm. I, You know, any chance I got really where I wasn't playing the game, and if I was playing that game at the time, I'd be looking at at the booklet. I was kind of a little bit weirdly obsessed, I guess. Um, yeah. But it, it, I just, it would loved it. Like for instance, when I was playing Ocarina of Time or, or Super Mario sixty four back in the beginning, I was on those manuals all the time, and because I loved the story aspects, I loved the artwork that was in them that you wouldn't see anywhere else. You know, to the, to the extent I used to try and scan them in the printer, and then I made like a little clip art library. Oh, wow of them Mm. so so then i could make my weird little stories and i wasn't very good at stories so it literally was like just random words and then a load of pictures you know because (laughs) that's the way my books work uh so it was quite quite funny like trying to yeah thinking back on that but yeah there was was those smash bros i loved looking mm, at, at that yeah that sort of manual and then later on you get like you know obviously you get the gamecuber and they're all very different and diverse you know some of them were really thick as well like i remember conker's badge fur day that was like a a differently binded massively thick uh, Mm. manual yeah diddy's kong racing that was lovely to look at loved that game
0: were you a big fan of strategy guides? because i was i you know when you said about taking them to school and stuff like that me and my friends would do the same thing we'd take like all our it was mainly gamecube for us because we were in secondary school when gamecube came around and we'd take them in and you know talk about them and stuff like that strategy guides was just like such a huge step up from a game manual obviously it's a different kind of setting i guess but in terms of the information what was the hair and the artwork and everything were you a big fan of them
3: yeah absolutely i loved looking at them i had i didn't have many because they were quite mm. expensive yeah um and uh, i had more of like the nintendo power magazines that had walkthrough sections as well as a few big strategy guides here and there um, yeah. for games that i was struggling with really um but yeah they they just look so beautiful and amazing and funny enough those those are one of the things actually that later on i did not keep if that Mm. makes sense yeah like i kept the games in the boxes and that sort of stuff but yeah the the walkthrough guides or the the magazines i think after a while when my room was a bit cluttered and needed a thing i was like oh i'm done with this you know i'll uh this can go somewhere because i Mm. didn't think much of it i wasn't really a a massive reader i didn't like reading a lot of books gaming got me reading yeah that makes sense so
1: yeah you mentioned that uh, you kind of made some like little homemade storylines and you were photocopying stuff i've seen on reddit recently there's a trend of people sharing like homemade manuals and people making you know covers for games when they were missing at home and stuff Uh, have you seen any examples of those
3: yeah, I mean there's a whole like Reddit for like, you know, um switch art covers and everything that are different or, you know, uh well, just a whole library of them for different consoles. And I'm like, that's so cool. It looks, you know, a lot different, a lot better. And then people make their own inserts, uh, especially when like Breath of the Wild came out, people were making like their own little here's my notebook of all the things I want to do and keeping my progress in tabs and stuff. And they're all different and diverse and it was really, really cool. And it kind of inspired me then to go the way I went with how I how I did some of mine. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I've I've seen it uh, sort of dotted around some people making like little digital versions and digital copies and that. And it's I, I do think it's really very unique and it's very clever and it's very personal to that person as well because mm. you spend a surprisingly a lot of time making it, if mm. you know what I mean. Like, yeah. and depending who makes it it will always look different from one person to another, how how you go approaching stuff and, and whatnot. So, yeah, it's really, really cool when, when sort of you see that. And it kind of like, you know, I didn't see it too much when I, when I first came. Well, I saw, I didn't see any like available that I could get, if you know what I mean. It was mm. mostly, here's what I've done at home and, and stuff. And um, if I wanted it, I would have to do the whole thing myself, if that makes mm. sense. I couldn't yeah. just. Grab it, but you know i did i did start doing something for super mario odyssey at home just just with my home printer and stuff and then sharing it other people are like oh well you know i'd love one and stuff And i was like well i
1: don't mind printing you one and sending it off and that sort of thing well one thing i loved was uh you know it was kind of like gamers adding their own things in there. So I remember, you know, buying games off eBay and finding cheat sheets, like, slipped into there or stuff written in the back of manuals as well. Um, do, did you find any of that kind of stuff when you were collecting?
3: Yeah, yeah. A lot of games I get secondhand, and especially in the notes page or something. Uh, I remember when I got, like, a, a GTA game for, uh, like, I think it was my Xbox GTA 4, for instance, or secondhand. And yeah, they had like all this sort of like you know little tidbits and secrets in the back, you know, or on, even on some N sixty four games, you had the classic sort of like Konami code, yeah, yeah, or all the level codes, yeah. <laughs> and I remember getting the cheat sheet books as well, so then I could write it in. You mm. See, so like Goldeneye, I, I knew how to make them have massive heads and whatnot, you know. Yeah, I was, I was there.
0: I was there. <laughs> I was there for that man. Seen some stuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so um. How do you think the disappearance of kind of like physical manuals from modern games is impacting the gaming experience? And when did you kind of notice that we were losing manuals?
3: Uh, okay, well, I'll go, I'll, go with the, I'll go with the second question first because it's a short one probably. The, mm-hmm. I noticed it more in the Wii U era. Mm. That PS4, uh, Xbox sort of one Wii U sort of thing, you'd buy it and there'd be hardly anything there. Wii U yeah. kind of had a, a digital manual that they didn't really advertise yeah and even that it was you had to scroll a lot it or or figure out something it wasn't as easy to access Mm -hmm. um so so especially in that era, end of the 3ds era they didn't really have much you know uh sort of um to add so that's that's when i sort of noticed it start phasing out and then obviously you then have the latest generation at the minute um or the current generation yeah they don't have anything at all you know, you're lucky to get an ad. So it's kind of in, in AAA, especially it's not, not there anymore, which is Mm. a bit of a shame. Uh, And um, they, you know, they obviously say it's environmental and that sort of thing, which I think for a massive company, you can make something environmentally friendly and still have it, you know, with the amount of recycling and reusable stuff we go through nowadays. It's not that, not too much extra for them. Uh, shall I say. Um, But I think it's because they'll have longer tutorials, they'll hold the hand more Mm. uh, because they don't have that barrier in sort of hardware or storage anymore. But that to me then kind of, like I remember playing Pokemon Legends and all that, you know, I made a manual for that. It was great. But I think it was like a two-hour tutorial really because I was still learning new stuff a couple of hours in. Yeah. And I was like, if you have to hold my hand for two hours, like... I want to get to the good stuff, mm. you know, like, and that's kind of what a manual gave you. It kind of like, look, this is what this is. This is kind of the backstory. This is what you're getting into. So the yeah. tutorial section, if there was any, it would be much shorter. And yeah. then you can get into the good stuff. If I'm mm. sort of still going through a tutorial, like a couple of hours in or, or whatnot, then, uh, you know, uh, I'm kind of lost the interest a little bit, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. And I never really looked at it from like that because for me it was i I completely agree with you kind of wii u xbox one that was kind of the first generation where manuals were just they were done i remember the back end of like the xbox 360 and the ps3 we were starting to you know the 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 later call of duties on those consoles were just coming with a spine card you know a card in there with
3: yeah exactly mm -hmm. yeah
0: with maybe a promotion on it, like a gun on it or something like that. And all of a sudden these manuals are disappearing. And I and maybe I just saw it because I'm a collector, it kind of made me furious. I got really angry and I couldn't really get it. And until you kind of telling us about that, telling me about that right now, I never really thought of it or looked at it from that point of view of like, you know, we don't have storage limitations anymore or games hold your hands now. And obviously I'm aware games hold your hands and gaming has changed so much over the last kind of 30, 40 years. But I never really looked at it like that. I was just blinded by rage that we didn't get manuals <laughs> anymore.
1: <laughs> so. Well, also you, you you did get manuals with some like special editions that they charged a lot more yeah. money for. You know. <laughs>
3: yeah, I always thought that was a bit weird. Yeah, we oh, like, got something there. Include it with everything, you know, if you can. Mm, um, special editions are for like those, you know, statues, coin things, and stuff that the the normal buyer wouldn't necessarily want or
0: need. So let's talk about your journey into creating manuals uh, for, you know, for video games. So you mentioned you kind of like you did the Mario Odyssey one stuff there. What inspired you to start it? What was, what was, tell us this journey then.
3: Uh, That's a very good question. Well, yeah, so it was inspired by just buying a Switch Mm. uh, and I kind of opened up Mario Odyssey to play it um, and I wanted to flick through to get an idea of what what it was about, but I just opened it up. And there's nothing there, and I was like, "Well, that's a bit annoying, shall we say?" <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so, so I wasn't too happy about that. Uh, but, yeah, and, it was just and
1: the empty. weird thing, the weird thing about Switch cases is they actually have like a spot to you know put a manual in. They've got those little clips in there.
3: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I was like, "Why is there nothing in here?" I was like, "Did mine come missing or something?" Am I, you know? Because it was a brand new sealed game. And I was like, you know, surely it wouldn't be like this. But yeah, I had a look and I was like, oh no, there is absolutely nothing. And I thought, well, you know, I was playing the game. I was enjoying it. And I mean, I'm no graphics designer or anything like that. I only dabbled in like Photoshop for like IT Sport or fun and that sort of thing. So I thought, you know, if if no one else is going to do it, I'm going to do it. Because then it will make me feel complete. This game is physically complete. Um, And it's also good to look back at the controls because... I did take a break for a little while and kind of forget half of them. So, uh, you know, that's always a good bonus, I would say to, to do something. But yeah. But then when, like I said, my hard drive died, I kind of lost interest in it because it took a lot of work to do. And, um, I was discouraged and I kind of, you know, I wanted to, I would rather just buy something that someone else has made and be like, yeah, this is it, you know, the, the easy way. Mm. Uh, but no one did. And, uh, so I was, so that's led me to making that that Super Mario Odyssey one in the first place, yeah. Um, and then when COVID hit, yeah. I thought I'd relook at it to see if anyone else did make any, you know, yeah. out there. And still, beholder to my surprise, because I had this idea for two years at that point. Mm. You know, I thought surely someone else has done something at this point. Yeah, uh, but yeah, no one else. Still was from what I could find or see or do anything anyway, you know, on Etsy or browsing the web and that sort of thing. So I I went, you know what? I've learned a bit in the couple of years with my f- weird Photoshop skills and that sort of thing. Uh, mm. And I saw on some of the because Zelda was out for you know quite a few years, Breath of the Wild, and people were like doing these really cool like companion books and everything looking really fancy. You no, know, so in my brain for like a little while, and I was like, "You know what I really want to make something like that, and I've kind of dabbled in it before, and seeing as there's nothing out there that I can just put in a case, I'll make that while remaking the Super Mario Odyssey one <clears throat> uh, so I don't lose the world to live because I still had yeah. the booklet physically, it's just there was no digital counterpart if that yeah. makes sense, yeah, yeah, so so yeah, so I kind of remade one while while doing the other um with a you know some some friends uh sort of chatting and, and live streaming uh and that sort of thing and then i i made both of them and i i was like hey look i made one too and it fits inside the case on like a facebook group and then it kind of like people were like oh please can i have one that's really cool and blah blah, blah. and it kind of went from from there essentially hmm.
1: um, do, you, do you think like the switch having a an actual physical card or or cartridge, uh, whatever they call that little thing. Um, Do you think that actually helps rather than having, you know, like an online digital download with uh, stuff like, you know, certain models of the Xbox and the PlayStation 4?
3: Oh, what, with like the booklets and everything?
1: Yeah, yeah, creating them. Like, is that why you targeted the Switch?
3: Well, I I targeted it because it's the main console I have and use. I do have like a PS5 and that, but I always find I'm playing nintendo and switch a lot more um and i was enjoying the the game a lot so because i love the art style and everything of some of them you know Mm. even though i love some ps5 games and some are very unique and awesome a lot of the AAA ones kind of just look all the same graphically wise if that makes sense yeah you know you know it's like oh it's just real really realistic rendering and lighting and all this sort of stuff and i'm like it's great but like Oh I like the unique stuff it kind of gets my creative flow mm. sort of in theater and that going a bit more so I'm more inclined to to think probably of making those yeah. um and then I forgot really what the question was about to answer properly
0: <laughs> <laughs> No you answered it that that makes sense so um Okay can you uh kind of tell us like so how does the process of actually creating the manual go so you make it in Photoshop um which is great but then how do you I used to yeah yeah, no, so not, anymore. not as much now. Okay, so how how does I guess I'm I'm rolling a few questions into one here because I've got I've got so many questions about it and uh, but just like I guess I guess I can try and break it down. So one, how do you get such good kind of like printing quality? Were you were you printing them yourself originally, or do you send them off to print because of um, that gl- the glossiness kind of finish? Two of them, it's just fantastic, and you wouldn't question you know if you opened up Tears of the Kingdom and you had your manual in there you wouldn't question that that wasn't nintendo's manual and then my next question is with some of the newer games how do you how do you get that information so quickly so i'll use tears of the kingdom again as an example you know how do you get so much information about the game do you get it before it comes out or do you just have to you just have to swing with it and do it as soon as the game comes out buy it and then start making it
3: uh okay yeah so to answer those two questions uh to go with the printing side uh originally when I first started they they were done on my home printer mm. using paper I kinda tried to match with like the GameCube manual print uh like paper and the N sixty four manual paper that I had. So I was always trying to I was working on a comparison and I bought like a few different samples off like Amazon or something. I went, Oh, I think this kind of goes with this or this because paper has different shines and it also has different thicknesses. Mm. and then depending what you're printing really now is like so much of one color or so much of so much ink will then bleed through to the other pages and you kind of don't want that because then you get a bit of a a ski whiff uh in ink levels um so you know i was always cautious i was well i wasn't always cautious back then but i am now but i i was uh trying to just to match like the the feel Mm. like when I open up an, uh, an original an official one and I go like, yeah, this feels great when you open it up. I was then trying to like staple at home, little like booklet, cut out things and be like, does this feel okay? You know, how does this thing? And basically at home before the hard drive crash and all that sort of thing, uh, they were done by a home printer on some paper mm. and I just cut it out with scissors and that sort yeah. of thing. Uh, getting some really sharp, good scissors. Um <laughs> when COVID hit and I was like, I want to do this properly, printing was one of the things I really wanted to look into doing because, uh, you know, you can have great design, but if you have an awful print, it just looks awful. Mm. Um, and that's what I found with my home printer. It didn't have the quality that I was after. So I learned pretty quickly that home printing isn't the way really to yeah. do it unless you have a big machine. And I was trying to talk to, to many people people get in contact and that and be like hey you know local around here and that and um i said hey you know like i'm trying to print like this size and try and do this sort of thing and a lot of the companies out there they're like oh it's too small you know don't you know we, we won't bother with that and i was like oh okay uh, and then yeah one one said i think we can help you out you know mm-hmm. uh we'll we'll have like a little test and that sort of thing and i said okay cool and i said this is what i'm trying to do and uh talking to them i learned a lot on print yeah um, because uh with printing you have like bleeding and crimp uh, creeping and all this sort of other stuff that you have to be aware of when you're making the thing mm. like for instance if cuz at the time uh i you know essentially doing photoshop and just making an image and that's yeah. it and then i print that image and cut around it to like really close quarters you know my scissors or something uh, but then I learned like, it's you got to have, over, you know, you got to expand more that no one's going to see essentially to make it work so that it looks flawless when you cut it and all that sort of stuff. And then depending on the thicknesses, it then all moves and stuff, uh, mm. magically. So I was like, okay, this is stuff I've got to be aware of. And then, uh, I was like, what about paper? You know, I was like, cause I only knew of matte and gloss, yeah. uh, majorly. Uh, And they were like, there's so much more. And we went through and I had samples of them to feel and open. it. I was like, you know what? This feels like the premium paper I want to work with. It's not shiny. It's not gloss. It's not matte. It's like an in the middle one. Mm. And it's a, you know, it's a a reasonable thickness. You know, you can't get, you can get a little bit thinner. But you don't want to go. You don't want to go too much thinner with it. And uh, yeah, so it feels nice. Hopefully, when when you open it up and you flick through, that it's like yeah, everything. You know, feels like a solid booklet, really.
0: Uh, yeah, that's awesome.
3: An item. So so yeah. So they helped out with that, and they would print out, and then I would I'd get it, and I'd be able to. I got like later on, I got one of those um, big cutter, industrial cutter yeah. things. So so they have like a really nice clean cut that can go through many pages perfectly and that sort of thing and sometimes the the printers they can partner to do a bit of that process as well on yeah ma- like bigger orders shall we say because mm-hmm. you know they also said like these aren't you know if you're going to use us or let us have these machines up like you have to like have a have a good number mm. you know mm. like yeah. whatever i was saying is like oh this is as max as i would ever have it they were like that's a really small order you yeah. know i was like but please <laughs> yeah. um so yeah so so they were like you know the bigger it is the cheaper it is and easier it is going to be for you and everything because the machine are the proper industrial ones they're gonna they cost a lot to run yeah um so to get to get my little sheets of paper through on the paper to make it feel good uh to make it feel good well yeah to make it feel good to make it look good you know, it is a it is a cost, so I have to make sure I've got like a good enough number for it mm. uh, to kind of make it worthwhile. Because if I was if I was going to do one on its own, it's like forty quid or fifty quid just for one. Yeah, you know. Whereas if I do like you know, uh, sort of a hundred or so, it's not forty or fifty quid for that one. It's like yeah. considerably lower because they just go through the run. If that makes yeah. sense.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's the machine's already on, cutting them, printing them, etc. So, if yes. you, yeah, I absolutely understand that. If you print a print hundred or a thousand of them, the more you print, the cheaper it becomes to, to yeah, I completely understand that. So um, how do you, so kind of reflecting back to, because that's really interesting, but how do you, you know, with Metroid Prime, would you revisit the old Metroid Prime manual and kind of borrow from that or, like, remake it? Um, or is it all kind of from scratch and, you know, like with some of the newer games that should have never had a manual before, such as... Breath of the Wild and Tears of Kingdom. Do you have access to the inf- information, or do you just have to kind of go at it yourself? What's what's the uh, what's the, story, the journey there?
3: Yeah, so you kind of, you kind of said it. Is it? I do basically a bit of both. I always play the <clears> game <throat> to get a feel for it, to yeah. have an understanding of what would kind of fit best from my experience, or what I would like if I was going to, you know, buy something or have something with the game. And um, for ones like uh, Link's Awakening, Skyward Sword, uh, Metro Prime Remastered, you know, having the old reference material and trying to recreate that is amazing. You know, Mm. it's so good to be like, this is what it looks like. I'm going to try and make it look like this, but I'm also going to try and modernize it like the remake did. Yeah. So, uh, which you know, you think, how how can you do that a little bit in a way? But uh, it, it's a weird one. Um, essentially, for uh, Link's Awakening, uh, the whole sort of, like, blue sort of theme of the game in the remake, mm. I applied that to the manual rather than the, like, red Game Boy uh, sort of manual. Yeah. Um, but then also, like, I recreated all the original screenshots yeah. in-game to suit the screenshots that they had in the old manual, and you know, using the new art style, they, they released like some lovely, like link character artwork that they never did anything with. So I included that in the manual to be the control section and everything, because it's link, you know, doing all those cool actions and stuff. So, yeah, you know, it's kind of like all the original material for those sort of ones are kind of there and you like side by side, you can see like, oh yes, you know, there it is. That's, That's it, if you know what I mean. That's the old manual. But it's got a new, modernized sort of like, you know, this is the remake, though. Mm -hmm. Um, And with Metroid Prime, you know, there's areas where uh, some of the backgrounds are, like, really blurry because they're low resolution. So I've kind of, like, been able to use sort of tools and sort of ways to, like, upscale and recreate them a little bit to suit some of the uh, concept worked for the enemies and that sort of thing, rather than the low poly ones and stuff. Yeah. So it kind of blends, blends a lot better. Um, It's stuff like that for, for those ones and other games like breath of the wild, that's all about exploration. So when everyone else was making mini companions, I thought that would suit better. Mm. And also I had it on my phone and I kept deleting the data every time I cleaned out my junk so <laughs> it was really frustrating i was like i want something where you can just open it and it's there and i can continue yeah. from where i left off yeah um, I was, you know but, yeah. but metroid dread i inspired that from the old scns manual yeah uh, the old snes one uh so all got, like, right the yeah big side metroid text and all that sort of thing yeah um, but playing the game you know especially looking at stuff like the ui you know how the loading screens and that sort of thing look it gives me an understanding of like you know, this is what they're after. If that makes sense, you know, this is how they make it function. And so, the manual or the booklet kind of reflects the look of the of that of <clears> the game. So that hopefully, when it's complete and it, you know, you flick through it, it it doesn't have that disjointedness. It's kind of like it looks as official as it could be while being unofficial.
0: Yeah, it does. Like I said, I've said it before, and I don't want to sound like I'm brown nosing too much, but you wouldn't doubt it was from Nintendo if you got that in Metroid Dread. And it's I think you've captured that so well. And well, I think it's really it's, am- like, it's oh. amazing how quick you get them out as well. <laughs> like, I'd still be working on it right now. <laughs> like, that's Metroid Dread's been out a while. So, yeah. is there... Um, do you have any sort of plans? Because one thing I used to love, along with manuals, and maybe this is a little bit more SNES era, so I might be going a bit too old school for you, but, you know, when you used to get maps and kind of, like, storybooks with your with your games as well you know often you would get and uh, maybe gta is a good example where you'd get a map of the yeah. uh the entire you know world that you're playing your game in and stuff so i guess like breath of the wild and Tears of the kingdom would be good for that have you got any sort of plans to do that kind of stuff in the future or is that maybe a little bit too much
3: i have dabbled a little bit it's kind of hard to like i love good big maps and i remember some of them like skyrim being like a fabric map and i thought that was really cool too yeah and yeah, so so with with some of them, uh, for instance, like th- uh, the Fire Emblem Three Houses one, I thought it'd be really cool to have like a sort of map with it. But the the cost of trying to get that sorted, it didn't seem too great yeah. overall. Like I would lose or or like make nothing really. It was a too much if gamble. I included it for free. And then if I had like a hundred of them or something made and then had to charge like an amount to make it bearable, you know, okay. Yeah. uh, I don't think anyone would really buy them. Yeah. Like it's kind of that weird thing of like, if I was like a proper, you know, the company people and I could get it vastly cheaper and discounted, it would be great. But at the minute I haven't really found anywhere to do it well Mm. In the sense of like, it's not just a piece of paper, yeah. you know, because you'd want it to be something that's like something different than you can do at home. If you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
1: What's the response from the community been like towards your work? And I was wondering if you had any, any odd requests as well to do like custom manuals for people.
3: It's been absolutely crazy. It's been like crazy in a sense of like so heartwarming and just, overwhelmingly amazing like never expected it at all the moment it sort of like started and then this journey started everyone's just really been so um you know so welcoming so loving and everything like yourselves as well you know when you say you know because I try and do the best I I can with them and then when you say they do look you know like they fit well and stuff like the goal that I was trying to kind of make is there it just fills me up with so much joy and and stuff because you know it's like that's the highest praise that i could ever get if you know what i mean like something that is you know something i've made looks it uh, looks official type of thing if you know what i mean um yeah so, yeah, so I- the whole whole community has been so loving so working i mean you get the odd one or two that that start going with the you know nintendo lawyer sort of aspect and stuff or uh so I, I was going to ask about that, office. actually.
1: <laughs> yeah, so Nintendo are, are quite aggressive. <laughs> um, have you had any uh, uh, stuff from them at all? Or uh, what? what's your plan with that?
2: Um,
3: I think when when I, if I remember, when I made quite a few, I kind of wanted to send them an, e- uh, an email saying like, hey, you know, is it okay if I do this type of thing? But I never got a reply like years ago. So I kind of, to the best of my ability and friends, we we looked up our UK laws and, and that sort of stuff here. And the area of where I'm trying to hit with them should be okay. Like, I'm no certified lawyer and that, but I've spoken to some solicitors and that sort of thing, and they haven't told me, oh, my God, never speak to us, blah, 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 and that sort of thing. So I only well, that's, assume that, that's good that the, the, the same sort of understanding is there um yeah essentially it it only bases solely though because i make them custom there there's no official material for instance so if nintendo started making manuals again i would have to stop or i couldn't make one for that game if that makes sense well uh, i was wondering exists
1: i was wondering have you been approached by any indie game studios to produce uh, manuals for their titles because there's a lot of like indie titles that are starting to go out on the Switch
3: yeah yeah i have i've made a couple um uh there was uh when premium edition games first started up oh yeah i yeah. made the the first couple of manuals for their games sort of as a as a co co-creator and then uh there was one for numskull uh, mm. uh recently or with a it was the it was a bunny one with a time machine of that and i made the, the manual for that or or the yeah the two two little manuals for those which is lovely And there may be another one in the coming future, but that's non-decided just yet. Yeah, so I can't say anything about that. I can't go too much into them because there's NDAs and stuff. Yeah, yeah. uh, Like you know, essentially, like yeah, there are there are I think like four or five that I've made for for different companies so far which is really crazy cool. I will say like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I never expected that in a million years, you know what I mean? Oh no, I'm uh, just a guy that does. Okay. Thank you for having
0: me. I mean, for for me, it kind of feels that would be the natural progression of it. You know, you kind of, you're making custom manuals, which are proving popular. The natural progression would be that maybe some indie studios or even a big studio would ask you to help out with them. Um, So I think that's really awesome. So um how far afield has kind of like your orders and demand gone? Are you get Do you get many orders from like Japan or is it kind of mainly Europe and the UK or is it kind of all over the place?
3: Uh, strange enough, it's mainly in the US. It's like 95% is the US and 5% oh, wow. is everywhere else. That's uh, interesting. It is really interesting. I, and it's, it's a bit of a shame, really, because I one of the things I really try and help with is postage stuff, because postage costs are an absolute pain in the ass, really, to say the least. And obviously, the Royal Mail is not the best. Let's let's go there, you know. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, but um, because over there, if, if I was based in the US or I could get it in the US, it like you know you could have like mail for ATP mm. or something, which is all tracked and everything because it's just internal to the US. Whereas for them, it's like a minimum of four pound twenty or something like that, and that's not even tracked. If you want tracked, it's like a tenner, which I think is absolutely insane to get any tracking at all.
1: Would you ever consider like uh, doing regional variations like, you know, a a Japanese translated one?
3: Uh, I would if there's enough demand for it. I know a lot like, for instance, a lot of people want like a French version or um, Spanish uh, and that sort of thing. And that's one thing I really want to try and work on. But for for some because I have 18 now do i how many is that one two no i'm not going to count but you know i have <laughs> like <laughs> i have them up on my side uh on here because i think oh, it quite nice in the new office but yeah but uh a lot of them a lot of people would love like regional specific you know one french one spanish mm. you know maybe something like that. and i'm like that's so great but i'm not fluent in any other language which mm. only makes me have to say like oh i have to pay someone to translate it which might be best with like a proper company or something I'd, you know, but then they pay pennies per a word and some manuals have like 5,000 words in them. So then you're paying like 400 quid for one translation of one manual when you have 16 of them and then Mm -hmm. all the other stuff to, you know, and it's like, if there's enough demand there, I, I definitely would never, you know, say no to it. And it's something I'm constantly always looking into because I feel like there could, but I, I, you know, it's quite, quite a large thing to do yeah you know because translating a manual can doesn't take up all the time but you have to reshuffle all the wording and everything to make it fit yeah and also then that takes away time of of making a a new one or something as well so it's kind of a very fine line of trying to sort something out i hope i do sort something out but yeah yeah Yeah. and then
0: obviously i got postage and everything on top which is uh, another thing i mean speaking of big projects and we kind of touched on it earlier on would you ever consider, you know, a strategy guide, creating your own strategy guide, or would that just be too much of an undertaking, do you think?
3: Uh, I feel like a strategy guide a little bit could stress me out a bit too much. Mm. Uh, I mean, I know someone, because I worked with their Metroid Dread strategy guide, because um, they asked me for to do the art assets for it, you know, like the boxes and that sort of thing uh, with their program. I'm um, seeing how much, like, you know, text and how much research has to go into it and stuff. You know, I I struggled a lot with Tears of the Kingdom, uh, yeah. trying to get that out. But I literally didn't sleep for like yeah three or four days just playing it, um because I you know if I was doing like a mini companion thing, I needed to know pretty much mostly everything that's in there, and then obviously there's a lot of search of online stuff, and uh, I feel like with a manual. You can have, like, because not every manual is perfect. Even some of the old ones have, like, imperfections and stuff. Yeah. You know, you can have a revision and that sort of thing to to have, like, a you know, as 100% as it can be type thing. And you don't have to be 100% in a manual. But with a strategy mm-hmm. guide, it's a walkthrough. You have to be yeah. correct and 100%. Mm-hmm. And I feel awful if I had this big book and I charged, like, 30 quid for it and everything like that saying this is how you 100% the whole thing blah blah blah," and it's not
0: yeah you got something in there completely wrong or one little thing (laughs) that makes the game 99% complete
3: yeah exactly 99.9 and you're like oh god you know and so yeah so that that kind of would uh would i think stress me out a little bit especially when you're because with strategy guides you know if you bring out a strategy guide now for like mario kart no one's gonna really buy it you got to keep with like the latest games, I think, mm. in that sort of sense. Um, yeah. Or maybe Mario Kart because they've got the waves and that. At the yeah. But if you know what I mean, like an older game, you know, because, and also then you do have some official ones. So it's like, how do you go about competing with an official strategy guide to have someone buy your strategy guide? If you know. Mm.
1: I was wondering if you ever considered kind of, you know, looking back at the past and going for maybe a Snares manual and, updating it and adding more information in there, like a kind of Redux version for some more vintage systems.
3: I'm really, I I would love to, but I'm kind of thinking legally wise, I shouldn't or I can't Um, because some of the older manuals, they still exist. Yeah. And I would be competing with a product that's existed. That is the only problem. I think the only reason why mine work is because there's no official thing in existence
0: you're not, you're not copying anything or ripping anything off are you
3: yeah so if i say like oh look here's my sort of you know uh super metroid or Star Fox, you know sort of manual and that sort of thing then i'd then be competing with nintendo's official one even though they don't sell it anymore mm. and then they could be like let's shut you down or something yeah, and I think yeah. that's kind of why some projects for some other people might have failed in the past. I'm not sure, because obviously no legalities going up, but it's something I don't want to risk. Yeah. Because one of the sense. caveats of where I try and aim them legally-wise is that um it doesn't affect Nintendo's revenue or anything. Yeah. So if I did release something that already existed and they buy mine to not buy uh, whatever they could ever release, then, you know that that would be affecting that i think in a negative way or could be yeah. seen as it so
0: yeah. yeah i guess it would be um bittersweet as well if uh, I, I doubt this would happen but if nintendo suddenly turned around and said we're bringing manuals back for all of our switch games now it'd be like okay that's wicked that they're coming back but with what you've just kind of said in reflection it, it, it wouldn't be good for business i guess hire well, me I mean, that's, that's what you'd say <laughs> yeah that's what you would say give me a job <laughs>
3: Yeah, I'd be like hi i I made a manual uh, <laughs> can I work with you uh that's, that's <laughs> what I would try and say first uh, yeah but then it also it would kind of be co- like really good in a way because you know hopefully that you know aspects of of me making these or it becoming known it is got to Nintendo or something to bring them back you know mm. like otherwise if no one did it um, cause you know, I'm not the only one that does it anymore, uh, which is quite cool that other people have made other switch manuals and that sort of thing, which is really, really cool. And it's, um, you know, it's, it would show that, you know, these things aren't missed and people do really want them with their stuff.
0: So, uh, our final question for you is kind of what's your vision for the future of your shop? And, uh, is there any upcoming projects and new manuals <coughs> you're particularly excited about or what you can tell us about?
3: Oh gosh. Uh, what am I excited for my shop in the future? I think just to keep surviving, mm. really.
2: <laughs> <Fair>. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. kind
3: of always the aim, you know. I'll always say uh, when we speak about Nintendo lawyers, like they're a massive company; they can shut me down at any point. And I hope that I uh, can be in the graces of the good books and keep going. Uh, and you know, hopefully, they like what I make, and I make more uh, to the to the best of my ability. Uh, you know, I'd love it if I could keep going, making more, and having the the library grow. Uh, for people so they can complete their little physical cases, um, and sets. As far as new manuals come, to be honest, I'm at a, a bit of a catch up with some orders and stuff. So I haven't actually started anything new just yet. Um, but I'm excited for a lot. Like, there's a lot on my list that that people suggest for me, and everything. I'd love to do like a Splatoon two and three. I'd love to do the Pikmin series. Um, you got Super Mario Wonder coming out as well as the new Luigi Mansion 2 and such you know so it's uh they all they all look great and I'd love to love to get to them you know so the next one I don't really know exactly off the top of my head what it would be
1: well uh before we end I was just wondering how can our listeners uh find out about your manuals and where can they see them online
3: Uh, They can see them in in two places. Um, They have uh, an Etsy, which is a bit more expensive because of Etsy fees and such. But that is mbpuk.etsy.com. Or they have my website, which has just recently been revamped and reopened, uh, which also houses like events that I'll be at live and, and everything else, which is quite cool in case they don't want to pay any postage and see me live to pick them up there. Um, And that is mbpuk.net.
1: Well, Rowan, it's been fantastic uh, having you on. And long live the manual.
3: Ah, long live the manual.